This is an ABC podcast. Concerns for threatened dugongs as runoff from floodwaters destroys their key food source. It's a little hard to say for sure right now until we've actually gone and surveyed in the deeper waters. But certainly, you know, there's not a lot of seagrass and, and they do need to eat a lot of seagrass to keep, keep going. Yeah. And we head to regional New South Wales where this farmer donated a big block of land to encourage kids to get into farming young. People say, oh, why'd you donate that whole block for them? Well, mate, I, I said, I rarely use it. And I said, it's going to be a benefit for me in the long run because it'll be cleaned up. We need more farmers. We're running out of farms. All our farmers are getting old in life. So we need to get a bit more young blood into the game. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk country. They're hard to spot at the best of times, but now researchers fear dugong populations off the coast of Queensland are in decline. Runoff from floodwaters have destroyed a key food source for the already threatened species, which is a major concern in popular dugong breeding areas like Harvey Bay. So to get a better look at the population, researchers are running a first-of-its-kind survey along the eastern coastline from Cape York to Moreton Bay. It involves one small plane and a few high-quality cameras. This report from Fraser Coast reporter Lucy Lorem. At Townsville Airport, a crew of researchers from James Cook University are preparing for takeoff. They'll be spending the next 12 months surveying dugong populations off the east coast of Queensland. This year, parts of the state, like the Fraser Coast, have been battered with heavy rains, major flooding and now a third consecutive La Nina event. This leaves senior researcher Christoph Kluger a little anxious about what they'll find. I think in Harvey Bay we've had a couple of major floods that have um, totally wiped out all of the seagrass in the area and, and that clearly has an impact on dugongs. If there's not enough seagrass for dugongs to feed on, dugongs will try and move to a, another seagrass patch. They might make it to another seagrass patch or they might die in the process of trying to find new seagrass to feed on. There are concerns from the community, uh, especially in Harvey Bay, where dugongs have started to die even before the floods have happened earlier this year. And the number of stranded animals in the Harvey Bay areas have continued to increase. So we are concerned about dugongs in the Harvey Bay area. But just how bad is the damage caused to Harvey Bay's seagrass beds? JCU scientist Michael Rashid has been taking a closer look at intertidal meadows. It's a little hard to say for sure right now but until we've actually gone and surveyed in the deeper waters. But certainly, you know, there's not a lot of seagrass. E- even though, the, you know, on a map there'll be reasonably large areas, where the seagrass is found, it's like less than 1% cover of, of the, you know, or 1% to 2% cover. So there's not a lot there. And, and they do need to eat a lot of seagrass to keep, keep going, yeah. How long does that take to replenish and get back to a healthy sort of level? Luckily, the, the, the seagrass species here, um, when the conditions are right, they're actually pretty quick growing. So they've got a capacity to come back pretty quickly. But for that to happen, they need you know, good light. Um, you know, they're plants, they need light to grow. So basically what we don't want is another whole sequence of floods coming up that uh, put dirty water out and cut the light out for a significant amount of time because that'll push them back lower again. So, so we're hoping that, you know, 
even though La Nina is still, uh, still with us apparently, that uh, hopefully we escape any really major floods of the Mary River this coming, uh, this coming wet season. As if the effects of climate change weren't enough, director of the Butchelan Native Title Aboriginal Corporation, Darren Blake, says dugongs are also grappling with other human impacts. I have seen some animals, you know, um, you know boat strikes and, yeah, it's, it's not pretty. You know, we're going to get a lot more recreational fishermen out here, so that's a bit scary. They've got to be, be aware and the more information that everyone's got, the better the animal, animal is. Dr Kluger hopes the aerial survey will help spread some of that information. For the first time in Queensland, we will be fitting the, the plane with three SLR cameras to replace human observers to conduct these large-scale dugong surveys. And we will be comparing what the cameras are seeing versus what the observers are seeing from the plane. And that comparison is really important to be able to then integrate new data, integrate imagery data with the past 30 years of data that we've been collecting using observers. Lucy Larum reporting there from Bundaberg in Queensland. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Gaswell reports released under Queensland's right to information laws have revealed evidence of significant corrosion and leaking in some coal seam gas wells in Queensland. And some experts say it could have broader implications. It comes as the coal seam gas industry continues to expand across the state, buoyed by international energy instability. National Regional Reporter Nathan Morris has this story. In this paddock here, it stopped being the first paddock I could get into. On his farm south of Dolby in southern Queensland, Russell Benny is sharing his concerns about nearby coal seam gas development with a group of visitors. Plant it, we couldn't harvest it, we couldn't spray it, it started to become hard to manage. He's worried about the impact on the prime cropping land he manages, a concern that flared years ago when he discovered a decommissioned coal seam gas well. What I've had to deal with is mining debris left scattered across the paddock and I've had to deal with uh, subsidence and pit holes because in those days they were digging pits into the ground to um, hang on to the drilling mud. After the well was cut off and backfilled with cement and dirt, Russell Benny claims the area was never properly remediated and is still littered with gravel carted in by the drillers. The gravel acts as a dam wall and backs water up and it prevents me from accessing the track I need to use to uh, farm. Have you had any contact from the regulator independent of the gas company checking on this old well? No. In short, what we have done is uh, my consultant escalated this matter to the Queensland Ombudsman, Land Access Ombudsman, who, after a very short and less than thorough investigation, found that because that well was drilled when uh, this area was a exploration lease uh, and it's now a petroleum lease, there's no more EAs in place that determine it needs to be rehabilitated. There are over 8,600 coal seam gas wells in operation across the Surratt Basin and up to 22,000 forecast in the coming decades. Now, reports from gas companies released through right to information laws have raised new questions about the industry's impact. The documents were obtained by the environmental group Lock the Gate Alliance and show significant corrosion and leaking in a number of coal seam gas wells. One report found compromised cement was found to be allowing aquifer contact with the gas well casing, which had corroded by 65%. 
what it confirms is that we know that there are issues with well integrity and it, it requires a lot, of, a lot of effort to identify wells that are problematic, that are, that are not performing in some capacity or creating risk, and then also to fix them. Gavin Mudd is an Associate Professor of Environmental Engineering at RMIT and has examined the reports. It may mean that you've uh, opened up pathways for a potential cross-contamination of groundwater. So uh, you've got a maybe poor quality groundwater from one part of the system that can then flow into another part of the, you know, the geologies. Tell me about the role bacteria is potentially playing in the corrosion of the well casing. Well, bacteria play a role in lots of things when it comes to sort of, I suppose, natural chemistry. If you've got bacteria consuming carbon, for example, that um, can release uh, carbon dioxide, which in groundwater then forms carbonic acid, which can cause corrosion. You've also got processes of uh, bacteria involved with processing sulfur that then leads to the formation of sulfuric acid that can then um, form corrosion. So there can be a whole range of different processes that bacteria can be involved with that can lead to corrosion risks. In total, the reports from between 2020 and 2021 show about six gas wells affected by corrosion or leaks. State regulators were informed and the issues were resolved by the respective gas companies. But Dr Mudd is worried there could be a broader long-term problem. There is real concern about what happens in 50 years' time or or longer. Uh, Cement doesn't last forever. Um, and especially when you've got either you know, salinity, like salt, uh, salt can affect the integrity of cement uh, if you give it long enough. In a statement, the state regulator Resources Safety and Health Queensland says it audits and inspects coal seam gas operators. And since 2020, less than 1% of Queensland coal seam gas wells have reported integrity issues. I now am held out of doing anything with a paddock for two to three months a year. But farmer Russell Benny says the potential risk is too great to ignore. We are very productive farming land here. We feed people thousands of tonnes of legumes and grain a year. You're going to not just uh, hinder our ability to be productive, but you're going to hinder the district's ability to be productive in the long run, and uh, it's not worth the risk. National Regional Reporter Nathan Morris reporting there from Dalby in Queensland. You're listening to Australia Wide. It's a species that I have been fighting for. Growing up in the bush is such a special thing. So when the rain does come we've we've got a few numbers what got to never come put a feather in your cap abc radio a search is underway for two men missing in floodwaters and flash flooding has caused widespread damage across parts of central and southern New South Wales after torrential rain lashed the region overnight. Our reporter Joanna Woodburn is in Orange in the New South Wales Central West. Now Joe, what's the latest on the search for these two missing men? Well unfortunately Sinead, they haven't been found yet so these two men um, aged in their 30s and 40s were last seen um, according to police in the in the tray of a ute, sorry, um, crossing a flooded causeway at Bevendale, which is near Burrowa, which is slightly south of Orange in the New South Wales Central West. And they haven't been seen since. Two of their companions managed to get out of the cabin and get to safety, but there hasn't been any sign of these two men who, who disappeared last night. So the search resumed at first light today and has been going on throughout today involving local police officers and the state emergency service. And police say that that search will likely be suspended again at nightfall today and resume at first light. So a pretty anxious search for, um, or a pretty anxious wait rather, for the two other occupants and obviously Mm. the, the men's family and friends. What sort of damage has this flash flooding done where you are? 
It's been incredible. I mean, the storm last night was like a tempest, and I, that probably sounds a bit dramatic, but it really was. It was lashing rain, strong winds, and it wasn't just a short, sharp storm that passed through. It went on, certainly here in Orange, for several hours, and some of the pictures that we've seen of damage to people's in their backyards, their gardens, and, of course, flash flooding in some smaller towns, bigger towns, um, just the creeks and riverway rivers are already so swollen. The water's got nowhere to go other than out of the banks and onto streets and roads. So it's been quite incredible. Given that, given the swollen rivers, what communities are most at risk with more flooding? You know, the houses most at risk. Do yeah, we know so yet? An, a number in the New South Wales Central West and Riverina. So here in the Central West, Bathurst, which is quite a large regional city, it's being told that major flooding could be um, occurring in that city from this evening, so Tuesday night. At Canoundra, which is west of Orange, it's also expected to experience major flooding with the Balabula River, which is the local river that runs through that town, expected to reach major flood levels uh, as well. Further downstream on the Lachlan River at Ford, so it's had it's been surrounded by floodwaters for several weeks now. Those floodwaters have receded in the last few days or in a few weeks as um, the floods water in the system has been managed by water authorities to try to get storages down. But with all of this rain yesterday and today and the inflows going into Wyangla Dam, which is at the top of the Lachlan River at Kaura, they're forecasting major flooding to return to Forbes from Friday. And the SES says that it could be as high as the major flood of 1952, which is sort of like the local benchmark. It was a big one and they're they're expecting the Lachlan could reach 10.8 metres at the main flood gauge in the town, which would rival that 1952 flood. It's pretty relentless, Joe. How are people going? Oh, exhausted, I think. I mean, people who are in towns and are having to either top up their sandbags or go and you know, reinforce their sandbags. It's that waiting game of will I or will I not be evacuated and will the house be inundated? And then for farmers um, who've had water on their properties at, in any, in, in certain, to certain levels for the last sort of year to two years in this region, it's just another blow. Um, no real um, certainty that any the water will recede in the next few weeks or months they're expecting this this flood or these flooding conditions to last well into summer because the water just hasn't got it hasn't had a chance to recede and and get away so as soon as it does sort of start to recede in any given community we seem to get another downpour of rain which tops up the storage and more releases have to be made and to top it all off, you're expecting snow tonight. I know, gosh, who would have thought? So the polar opposite, pardon the pun. Um, mm. Yes, snow is forecast on the central and southern tablelands coming in tonight. So possibly down to around about eight or 900 metres was the most recent forecast. Now, to give an example, Orange sits at about 860 metres. So if that low level of 800 eventuates we could be um we could be making snowmen tomorrow in amongst the floodwaters well your little fella will enjoy it but that's about <laughs> it really <laughs> i think so i think this crazy weather i think everyone would just probably like it to be a nice spring-like mm. season basically and go into a nice dry summer to um to dry things out a bit so 
Well, well hopefully that is coming. Joanna Woodburn in Orange, thanks for chatting to Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. A tiny school in western New South Wales is about to harvest its first wheat crop. Hermadale Public School has only seven students, but despite its small class size, it's a school with very big dreams. They've spent the past six months tending to an 85-acre crop that they hope to strip this month. Jen McCutcheon reports from Hermadale. Paul Kelly once sang, From Little Things, Big Things Grow. And that's exactly what's happening at Hermadale Public School. The tiny school is located in western New South Wales, more than 600 kilometres west of Sydney. It's made up of just seven students from kindergarten to year six. The principal is Sky Deadman. So our motto is um, reach for the stars. And so we talk about that a lot as teachers. We hold the ladder for them to reach for the stars. So we give them the tools um, for them then to go forward in their, in their journey as lifelong learners. Each day, the students swap their uniforms for work shirts and boots and spend part of their school day outside. They've spent most of this year tending to an 85-hectare wheat crop and are now gearing up for harvest. Ruby Mudford and Ollie Sheetha are both in their last year of primary school. I've loved watching all the machinery and things come out and like spraying and sewing and things. We come out here maybe twice or three times a week and we come out to the crop and we measure it, we check how many seeds are on the head and we try to find the seed in the head. We've had the whole community help. We've had people donate chemical and seed and we've had people use their machinery as well and we can't wait to harvest. See how it starts to turn golden at the top like in that bit we need it to turn fully golden and then the actual seeds to go gold and then it can be harvested if it does rain in the middle of harvest well that's gonna obviously make it wet and the harvesters can't get in to do it so hopefully not too many bogs yeah we're hoping that but i reckon they will be <laughs> the paddock neighbors the school and was donated by former student craig grimmond i donated it to him i was very kind and generous i suppose but yeah People say, well, what'd you donate that whole block from? Well, mate, I, I said, I rarely use it. And I said, it's going to be a benefit for me in the long run because it'll be cleaned up. We need more farmers. We're running out of farmers. All our farmers are getting old in life. So we need to get a bit more young blood into the game instead of being so many uh, people going into the law and doctors and we need more, more farmers. Sky Deadman says the Cropping Immersion Project has been a welcome opportunity for the students and the community after experiencing the worst drought in living memory, a mouse plague and COVID-19 lockdowns. Our school and our community really felt um, the brunt of the drought. It was three very long, hard years. There was days when we couldn't see our playground for dust. Um, So it's really, it's come a full circle in that now, three years later, we're in a position where we've got the right amount of moisture, the heads are filling out. We're looking at harvesting in November sometime. So for the next few weeks, we really would like some dry conditions, hot winds, just to let that wheat ripen perfectly. But, you know, we're pretty resilient farmers and if it doesn't go that way, we'll just adapt to it. The whole town has pitched in to help, including parent and farmer Darren Mudford. Yeah, end of January we tied up a few sticks there and then we ploughed it. One of the kids' fathers ploughed her up and then got a few rain events and then we've sowed it. And oh, It'd be nice to think we'll get two, two and a half tonnes a hectare, which is not a bad effort. <laughs> 
pretty amazing. Yeah. The students' wheat crop is expected to yield over 100 tonnes at harvest and raise up to $50,000. That money will then be used to send the students on education-based excursions around the country. Sky Deadman says they're even hoping to go to Newcastle later this year to see their wheat being loaded at port. Our whole project is about growing our future. So there's the two elements. There's a cropping project, which obviously we can talk about sustainability, agriculture, environmental aspects. But then our other side of the project is the educational, cultural and social part. 115. 115 centimetres. We are going to do education, cultural and social immersion projects as well. So then being able to take them to Newcastle to see the grain being loaded, they'll then see the whole cycle of from planting the seed to selling to the export market. And again, we talk about where our wheat's going to end up, you know, in other countries around, around the world. And we know that Australia is one of the highest exporters of wheat. So for them to see that we're part of a global market. The average age of a farmer in Australia is about 59, but these students are showing there's definitely a future in farming. And after years of praying for rain, they're now hoping for some blue skies to see their dream crop become a reality. Out here we um, find it hard to knock back rain and a wet harvest always beats no harvest. Absolutely amazing learning there. Jen McCutcheon reporting from Hermadale. Lend us your ears and experience a world of audio content with ABC Listen. A world of sound. Like Expanse, Pink Diamond Heist. How millions of dollars of diamonds were stolen in the middle of the bush and somehow smuggled to Europe. And dive deep beneath the surface of three crooked cops known as the Rat Pack. In Dig, Sirens Are Coming. Dorothy handed Hallahan the money and when he walked off, the undercovers swooped. The ABC Listen app. Lend me your ears. Download it now from your app store. Finally, we're going to head to the top end where Territorians have put their very own special spin on race day. While Melbourne Cup had wild weather and horses, Territorians slapped on their fascinators, dusted off their best pair of thongs and went to the tavern for some good old-fashioned crock racing. According to Berry Springs Tavern owner Ian Sloan, not only is it the richest crock race in the world, it's the longest track in the world and the crocks, well, they're apparently the fastest in the world. Darren reporter Mitch Abram headed along to Berry Springs to see what all the buzz was about. Crocodile's been preparing hard all weekend. Track work's been good. Uh, it's a lovely day today. The track's firm. Bit of a downhill slope, so I think it's a perfect, perfect racing uh, conditions for the saltwater crocodiles today. Yeah. Um, what's on the cards for everyone who comes down today? Uh, first prize is a carton of beer today, so it's, uh, we've pulled out all the big guns. It used to be a six-pack, but we've had a pretty good dry season this year, so we splashed out and got a full carton. So uh, there'll be three races between 12 and 3 o'clock today. And there's a horse race in the middle there somewhere. Melbourne, but we're not too fast. It's much better, much better than Melbourne Cup. Like, I actually won money, so yeah, no. <laughs> it's been great, yeah. Oh yeah, look at the weather. Why would you wear a suit and tie in this place? They're down there in the freezing cold. They can wear suit and ties. We're up here in the 40s and the bright shirts. It's great, like, it's a uniquely territorial event. It's the only place in the world uh, where saltwater crocodiles are raced. It's the uh, richest crocodile race in the world. It's the longest track in the world. It's the fastest crocodile world. Fastest crocodiles in the world. The people do really get dressed up for this event. There's lots of ladies in beautiful dresses and fascinators, and some guys put on their best phones for the day. So uh, it's a bit of fun, and um, it's, it's always well supported. It's great for all the world pubs like, to have events like us and uh, the frog races in Newman. Just, just unique events. Everybody, get behind them. Three, two, one, go! Oh, wow. So 
this is little Cuddles. He's a very keen racer. He's been stretching all morning, ready to go. And he's our little saltwater crocodile. We've got five of these other friends ready to go as well. And how the crocs do on the racetrack? Oh, they're pretty good. Um, corners they don't do so well and they slip out. That's what the claws are for. Um, but hopefully on this uh, straight they'll be pretty good. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I get to come and spend the day at the pub with my favourite crocodile. couple of my favourite crocodiles, so absolutely love it. Awesome day. Always is. It's a great event here every year. Watching crocodiles race in real territory and just a great day. It's pretty fantastic, all right. Darwin reporter Mitch Abram reporting there from the Crockington Racecourse in Berry Springs. And you also heard from crocodile handler Peyton Prosser. And that's Australia-wide for this Melbourne Cup Day or race day. It's Tuesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.